Welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. A few months back, Foreign Policy magazine ran an article entitled, Oh God, Not the Peloponnesian War Again. The thesis was simple. Scholars should maybe consider looking at cases outside of European antiquity when they consider the big questions of war, peace, and power transitions. But this prompted a firestorm on social media as scholars rushed to defend the teaching of the classics and others denounced the reliance on works written by old white men. If we move past the grumbling, though, there's a serious point to be made here. A lot of arguments about the rise of China default to describing it as a Thucydides trap. Arguments about war rely heavily on World War I. Arguments about great powers and alliances rely almost exclusively on Europe in the 19th and 20th century, and it's rare to find work on the big questions of IR that doesn't rely at least heavily on Europe. This is really problematic, especially when the potential power transition facing us today includes China, an Asian power. So my guests today have written extensively on Asia, including recent work on why we should take Asian cases more seriously in our understanding of these issues. They're here to explain why it matters and whether it should change how we view a rising China. David Kang is the Maria Crutcher Professor in International Relations at the University of Southern California, and Shinru Ma is Postdoctoral Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. Guys, welcome to Power Problems. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, Foreign Policy ran this article about Thucydides and why we shouldn't rely completely on his work as a guide to power transitions. Um, but I think you guys are making a slightly different argument. Um, and I read your argument as the idea that even nuanced takes, um, even very scholarly books, tend to rely almost entirely on European cases. So can we start just by talking a little about why that's so problematic? Yeah, sure. I mean, in the paper, we call this kind of exclusive reliance on European cases as selection bias, which is really academic. But what we want to say is it is actually more than that. It is almost an intellectual blind spot. So this is problematic because it blinds us to the reality of East Asia today, which will ultimately hurt the U.S. foreign policy making. So interpreting Asia within and reacting to a framework that uses European examples has led to at least an over-expectation that a power transitions are prime factor for war, along with misplaced concerns resulting from comparing China to various rising powers in European history. So it sounds like almost like a no-brainer to say that, oh, to truly understand China or, or Asia, we need to look at the Asian history itself. But had we started with the East Asian history rather than the European history, we would arrive at least two different perceptions of Asia. First, the region is more stable than popularly assumed. And two, domestic risk and constraints matters more than external expansion and conquest. So whether such perceptions of Asia are right or not are debatable and are happy to engage with that kind of debate. But realizing the existing heavy reliance on European cases itself already opens the door for an alternative vision of U.S. foreign policies, a vision that I believe is grounded in cases that are more geographically, culturally, and historically relevant. Dave, would you like to add to that at all? No, I think I think Shinru did a, did a great job of of summing it up. Right? What I what I would say is simply, 
I find it um, just amazing how when we are uh, looking at China, trying to understand China today, everybody swivels and looks back at European history. And as you said, we get involved in these you know, arcane debates about how we interpret uh, Thucydides or the Peloponnesian War, um, as if my interpretation of Greek history, uh, if it's better than yours, somehow that gives more insight to China, right? I mean, this is, why would we expect European history to explain uh, Asian, Asian futures, right? If we want to understand China, why don't we look at Asian history instead? And what's interesting, as Shinri said, if you look at Asian history, you get a lot of different lessons from history. Yeah. So, I mean, so how I sort of read the power transition literature as, as it is right now, based on these sort of European cases, is that it's very much about rising and declining powers, about the risks of war, about how those powers interact and play off one another, um, whether, you know, a rising power predates on a declining power, all that kind of thing. Um, and then when we sort of swivel in most of those books, and they swivel and they talk about what that means for China, um, there's just an assumption, I think, that China and the US are going to fit into this rising and falling paradigm. But Shinra, you, you said that um, Asian power transitions are a lot more stable, or rather that the balance of power is more stable. Could you elaborate on that a little? Yeah, sure. So um, when, I, when I said like a region is more stable than assumed, is exactly in response to the literature that you just referred to. So basically like using the European cases to talk about Asian. But then if we look at Asian, especially look at the one, one, uh, 1500 years of Asia, what we see is um, the region itself exper experienced a way less war uh, than the history in the Europe. In fact, um, the the case that we talked about, the Indian case, is one uh, is the only war that happened that involved major powers in the continent. On the other hand, the fact that the countries peacefully coexisted with each other does not only exist in historical East Asia. In fact, in contemporary Asia, a power transition has already occurred between China and the Japan, and no war happened. And especially when China, uh, especially in the region, the countries didn't really see China as an existential threat. They have choose to deal with China with other um, ways, especially the diplomatic channel. I think that alone calls us attention, um, um, pay attention to the limited application and utility of using power transition theory um, to apply to China and East Asia. And also it points out the need for the U.S. to rebalance with non-military engagement with the region. Do we understand, I guess, why? Do, do we have any sort of theories about why those power transitions have been so much more peaceful? And I guess, why has East Asia been more peaceful? I mean, so I can, you know, I can think of a couple off the top of my head, you know, one being just that it's a region that is at least geographically dominated by a very large power. There's there's less equality between the powers, perhaps, in Asia than elsewhere. Um, but are there other, other reasons or do, do we just not know why it looks so different? Well, if I can jump in, right? I mean, I think one of the ways that I would put it is that East Asia has historically been a hegemonic system, as you said. It doesn't look like Europe. There not, aren't a bunch of similarly sized states contending for first place. You know, historically, for at least 2,000 years, China has been the hegemon. Now, China has gone through times when it's weak, when it's fallen apart. But it always comes back together again, and all the other little countries around around it uh, are tiny in comparison to China. 
And so it's a very different type of system. And you see that today. Right. I mean, one of the things we keep talking about, sort of the coming collapse of China, uh, a number of people in in the sort of D.C. in the in the blob um, have made an entire career predicting the coming collapse of China for 20 years. Right. Even if China falls apart and it becomes half its size, the economy is half its size. You know, its economy and its population will still be like three times the size of Japan. It's that much bigger than everybody else. Right. And so the countries in the region aren't moving away. They have to live with this kind of a size, and they always have. One of the interesting things about history, and then I'll and then I'll uh, let you jump back in, that you know China rose and fell, dynasties came and rose and fell. Almost always, it was for internal reasons, internal decay, domestic collapse, and that's the lesson that we take away from looking at Asian history. It's not external challenge, and as you said, the rise in you know con- uh, competition among states. Its internal challenges are the biggest threat to the survival of a regime. And I think there are huge lessons for the United States and for China today. You know, I really thought that was one of the most interesting points in in your paper on this was that the idea that internal challenges mattered more. And I, I honestly wondered if that's something that we couldn't extrapolate out to the American case more effectively, because American scholars, again, focus so much on these European cases, European states obviously being in that milieu with a bunch of great powers of similar size and composition, and America, you know, effectively alone on its continent, just us and the Canadians, basically. And so I, I have to wonder if, you know, perhaps the Asian cases might extrapolate better to America than, than what we're doing right now. I think so. And in many ways, I often say that U.S. and China are more similar than different. They're both huge continent-sized countries. They're both massively powerful and influential in their regions. Both are hege- regional hegemons. Both, interestingly, started on their eastern seaboard with industrialized, urbanized east coasts and expanded west into a largely uh, uninhabited frontier, right? Uh, So they're very similar. But in many ways, when I think about the issues facing the U.S. today, I see uh, the domestic challenges that we face, and I don't even need to um, enumerate them. Environmental, a society that is going through a profound reckoning, political, and increasing economic um, inequality, Right? These are the types of issues that if we don't address, it won't really matter what China does because we're going to take ourselves out of any great power competition. You know, I think this is much more consequential than, frankly, uh, U.S.-China contending over uninhabited rocks in the South China Seas. I mean, if I look at the challenges to the United States, that's not those rocks. So those are the lessons that I take from looking at Asian history. And I think you're right. I just want to add to what Professor Khan has said about, you know, like how the Asian um, cases can be also be applied or even more applicable to the U.S. today. Um, Using the recent controversies on China, uh, you know, on U.S.'s uh, take on China's tech companies like Huawei, WeChat and TikTok. Um, As we, you know, if we are preoccupied with the approach of power transition, the first response will usually would be uh, containment. And then the recent moves by the Trump administration seems to be reasonable. But if we really approach from the perspective of domestic constraint and the domestic risk, then what the U.S. needs is not really a strategy against Huawei or WeChat, but a strategy of developing its own 5G, its own network. So, and this should come regardless with the Huawei or China or any other companies in this world does. So, um, compared to its current 
um, strategies. The fact that a lot of the U.S. current policies are coming as a reactive and a patchy measures in response to development in other countries is more of a national threat. I think that's also um, what the Asian cases can um, can 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 show in terms of the U.S. context. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so I do actually want to come back into sort of the the Asian sphere because we we sort of jumped right ahead to yeah. America, and that's why. Yeah. Um, but I, I was hoping actually that you could maybe talk us through one of your cases um, because, like many people in Washington elsewhere, I know almost nothing about Asian history, and I found these cases to just be absolutely fascinating and how kind of different they were. So perhaps you could pick one and, and just talk us through it. So I think one of the most fascinating examples of an Asian power transition is the decline and the collapse of the Ming dynasty, which ruled from uh, 1368 to 1644, about 300 years, right? If these dynasties didn't fall uh, because of Mongol hordes, which are the exception, why did they fall? Almost always they fell from internal collapse. The Ming dynasty at its height uh, was the most powerful country in the world. By itself, it had a larger uh, economy than all of Western Europe put together. I mean, we sort of know this about China, right? It's massive. It was incredibly innovative. They, Chinese Ming, uh, Ming uh, seafarers could go, you know, had developed a magnetic compass and double hulls. So they, they were better uh, salesmen, you know, they were better on the oceans than the Europeans at the time. Massive, massive uh, country. So why did it fall apart? In the space of about 30 years, internal decay uh, caused it to fall down. There were internal rebellions. Uh, the Manchus that eventually took over had not attacked uh, China. There were internal rebels that attacked Beijing. The walls were opened. The doors were opened from the inside by a traitor. The last Ming emperor hanged himself. And only then did the Manchus push on an open door and say, well, maybe we'll come in. It looks like there's chaos down there, right? It was the inability to manage their own military, their own economy uh, that did in the Ming, not the external attacks. Shinri, would you want to add to that? Yeah, um, yeah. just to put a little bit of context on the um, internal rebelling that Professor Kong was referring to. So um, those internal conflicts tend to be enormous in size. So, for instance, a rebellion in the southwest, which is called the Shu'an Rebellion, was uh, eventually crushed by the Ming. But this crash was at the cost of mobilizing almost 1 million troops and 35 million tons of silver. Um, to put this kind of the numbers in perspective, the Spanish Armada, which was always termed as the greatest military force ever assembled in Renaissance Europe, consisted of only 30,000 troops and then was defeated by 20,000 English troops. So this was how big those internal rebellions was in the Ming Dynasty. Yeah, I mean, the numbers that you're describing there are more akin to, you know, Napoleonic era warfare than to, to anything in, in pre-Napoleonic Europe. So those are, you're right, absolutely huge numbers. Okay, so, um, yeah, so that's one of your cases. Um, there's there's another case in the paper, and, and they're both they're both really interesting. Um, but I, I'd like to bring us back to sort of a more general discussion here. Um, and, and I guess my, my big question to you is, do you think your findings have broader implications for IR theory? Um, because the discussion that we've had here basically is, um, you know, we draw this general framework of great power transition and we draw almost entirely out of European cases and then we say it's universal. Um, 
do you think that this is a broader problem in international relations? Yes. <laughs> yes, we do. Um, right. In many ways, you know, we sort of assume that the European examples are universal. But if you think about it intuitively, if there are different regions of the world and those regions have different cultural, religious, uh, social, you know, economic, philosophical uh, um, histories, why would we expect that politics is the same? I mean, to me, intuitively, it would seem to be different. And that doesn't mean that we just say everyone's different. We're Orientalists, what people like to say. It means let's take that seriously and figure out what's similar and what's different. So I think in many ways, a lot of theories that we think are universal may not be quite as universal as we think. Uh, and being open to the variety of different ways in which countries interact, I think, would make all IR theory better. You know, um, some of the I, I know that there's been some really interesting work done on state formation literature in the African context, which is kind of making a similar point, which is, again, the European state formation, particularly the warfare element of it, may be somewhat unique. Um, actually, it turns out that just Europe is an outlier in levels of violence when you compare it to all other regions. And, and that's a really interesting finding. Yes, it is. And in fact, that's one of the issues, right? People always get mad if we say there was less war among great powers in Asia. But it's true. We can measure it, right? We've published a lot of stuff on that, right? The interesting thing about state formation is um, I'm also involved in some research working on state formation in East Asia. And you can look. These were recognizable states, centrally administered, bureauc massive bureaucracies defined over territory about a thousand years before you could imagine that occurring in Europe. I mean, literally a thousand years. You have the fifth, sixth, seventh centuries. You have massive centralized states in East Asia. Uh, and we simply just ignore that for the uh, European experience. Yeah. Okay, so let's um, come back up to the present day. I guess. Um, so you've argued that um, we should consider the Asian experience more seriously. Um, but I was thinking that perhaps if we're talking about power transition that includes an, an American state um, and a Chinese state, how do we figure out which sort of set of cases is the right one to draw from? Because it seems to me like we're actually talking about multiple environments here. And perhaps what holds true for the Chinese case doesn't necessarily hold true for the American case, even though it's these two states in interaction. This is one of those fascinating questions, right? Are we all the same? Are we all now Westphalian modern nation states? Because in some ways, China is one of the biggest defenders today of what it means to have a, a nation state. They defend territorial sovereignty. Don't you tell me what to do in my in my territory, right? In many ways where, where countries are now sort of, some countries are moving beyond the national territory, you know, the, the nation state, right? I mean, Europe is now supposedly, you know, uh, something. <laughs> sure, yes. <laughs> yes, ig yes. Ignoring Brexit, but anyway, you know, like, <laughs> are we moving beyond the nation state? Whereas China clearly is part of the nation state. And the question is, how much? How much of it is now that, oh, China's just like us, they'll behave the same way? Or that they actually have a different viewpoint uh, and it's the U.S. that doesn't? That's an open question. But what I would say is our research at least poses that question and makes you consider that not, it's not inevitable that two rising powers are going to end up contending for, uh, you know, for, for global domination. Now, I mean, uh, what 
um, Professor Khan just mentioned reminded me of one pushback we often hear when we are writing the research, which is the world is Western Western now. So even if the theory, uh, the power transition theory only applied and originated from Europe at certain times in history, um, the theory is applicable today to today's world. But as he pointed out, it is really far from clear that all states today are Western Valley now. Indeed, you know, like if China has fundamentally changed and is now a Western Valley state, then all the concerns about the challenge China poses uh, to the Western liberal order is going to be wrong because China cannot simultaneously be unproblematically and completely westernized and become a modern state, and yet poses a fundamental challenge to the same Western uh, Western Western Valley order. Well, we've had quite a lot of conversations in the past on this podcast with various people talking about order and reordering order and all the different things that, that relate to that question. Um, and it's a good one. One thing that I, I sort of took from some of your research that I thought might be really relevant was this question of power vacuums and, and when they form. And you, you seem to see that a lot in the, the Asian sort of milieu. I was wondering if you could talk just a little more about that. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things that comes up because what we did is we actually looked at, again for a fifteen hundred years of East Asian history. We looked at the rise and fall of dynasties, not only in China but in Korea, Japan, Vietnam. Overwhelmingly, they're internal, right? And what happens is, usually, it's interesting enough if you have a hierarchy, and if everybody in the hierarchy knows their place, it actually tends to be fairly stable. What happens, the problem with hierarchies are that if it's not clear what the hierarchy is, or if there's a power vacuum, that's when there's a mad scramble. And that's what we see in the East Asian case, is it wasn't necessarily Chinese power that caused problems. It was the absence of Chinese power. It was a power vacuum that caused everyone to say, hey, maybe I'll take over now. Um, and so the lessons that we would draw for today as well are, and in a way, it's not a surprise. When China fell into chaos in the early 20th century with the collapse of the Qing, uh, the Boxer rebellions, the unequal treaties by all the Western powers, that's when the Japanese started to invade, the U.S. was encroaching, and we had 50 years of war. In many ways, as China has gotten richer and more wealthy, the region has become more stable. Uh, and so in some ways, the fear shouldn't be power uh, rise. It should be power vacuum. That is not something that I think will win you many friends in, in Washington. Um, so I guess let, let's top things off today just by talking about um, where we are today and whether, I guess, whether America's strategy towards China such as it is, um, is the right one. And I know, Dave, you've written more broadly on this. I'd love to hear your thoughts too, Shinru. But, you know, how should America approach a rising China? Yeah. I mean, I will start because I have, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on record, right? So, uh, but I think it's very important that we think about this, right? Like, I go back to, even when we are talking about a power transition, and I point out, China doesn't f uh, pose a national security risk. We don't have an existential threat from China. In fact, we don't even really have a second order threat, meaning some of our allies, they threaten to invade. It's really third order. It's at the margins of those countries, the South China Seas, right? Some uninhabited rocks. And people will say, well, but without challenging that, then it can become second order and pretty something. That's, you know, the number of leaps that you have to make, right? So in many ways, a military first, Jut Jud, uh, and I know that the U.S. military, the U.S. Army, you know, all of the D.C. blob, <laughs> right, are now rapidly orienting towards a China threat, we tried engagement time to contain. 
And I think that's fundamentally flawed. It's going to hurt us to do that. First, China doesn't pose a military threat. As I said, it's at the margins. But what it does pose is a massive question for how everybody is going to live with it. China's not going anywhere. There's no way we're going to solve the China problem. It's a massive old country. And we're not thinking about how we're going to live with it. The countries in the region are. And that, in, that requires learning to push back on China, learning to deal with China, learning to use diplomacy and economics. Right. And I don't think we're even focused anywhere near on actually how we're going to craft a living relationship with a country. We still think that we're going to somehow use our military. And I think in the United States, we are way overstretched to use our military. That should not be the first thing we think about. That should be the last uh, arm of diplomacy. Interesting. That implies, I think, that we should listen to our Asian allies more. Um, but Shinra, I want nice. to give, you, <laughs> I give you the last word here. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. So the other interesting thing from the case uh, we started in East Asia is that uh, we have really found the cases with small countries in the region like Japan and Korea ever allied together to balance against China, no matter how big China was at that time, historically. And this is also true today, today uh, in today's Asian context, because we saw a lot of literature debates on Asian when small countries in East Asia try to, you know, cater to two demands, but we never see explicit action of balance. So this basically tells us, I think, is an enduring, accurate, but also often overlooked story about East Asia, that the East Asian countries, including the U.S. allies, only share some, but not all the priorities of the U.S. So this is, the, um, is a lesson that I can see uh, from studying the East Asian cases. The other, the other one is, I think, the danger of current U.S. strategy is uh, to become this kind of so, um, you know, self-fulfilling prophecies, if we continue to see China as a rising power that will ultimately threat the U.S.'s hegemon in the world. Um, let me provide another um, example, maybe to provide a little bit of context, which is the interpretation of China's wolf wolf warrior diplomacy uh, when the Chinese diplomats are increasingly engaging with combative appearance on social media such as Twitter. And then again, if we are preoccupied with the notion that they did so, the diplomats of China did so because China is rising, they are really confident about themselves, then naturally uh, we would adopt a patchy, heavy-handed approach of containment. But what is often neglected is that such kind of a, diplomat, a diplomatic approach, um, the major audience of such diplomatic audience is actually domestic ones in China rather than the foreign ones. And the main goal is to build a domestic support for the Chinese Communist Party. So then if we, you know, flip side, if we have the domestic audience in mind, um, that will uh, lead to um, maybe give us more room for innovative diplomatic approach uh, to engage with China, rather than just see it as a disc assertive kind of a rising power that threatens the US existence. I think that's a great point. And uh, I think there's a lot of people here in the US who have recent experience with a leader using Twitter to try and reach a domestic audience. <laughs> so I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thanks to you both for being here. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. 
And thanks to our production team, Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman, and Lauren Sander. Thanks to you all at home for listening. As always, uh, if you want to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, you can leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts.